Welcome to Lakeside. Um, if this is your first time here, um, we're very glad you're here. And uh, I want to let you know that I am not the regular pastor, so you wouldn't have to put up with me frequently. Um, uh, pastor Peter sent me a text a few weeks ago, and he said he planned to be in a, at a wedding on this day, and he said, would I be willing to preach uh, one of the lessons on the series as we discuss the, the um, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit? And he said, it would be time at, today, it would be on patience. And my initial thought was, which I didn't do, I, I thought, I'll send him a text, I can hardly wait, but I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. Um, but I did mull it over in my mind, and, it, and I thought, well, you know, I, I've had five children, I've been through a lot of experiences, maybe the Lord has taught me some things about patience, and maybe he wants me to share those. Maybe he'll use me to share those things about patience. And so I was thinking that, and I responded, I'd be willing to do that. And he always, of course, gives me the opportunity to say no. And this morning, my thoughts had had gone from, well, maybe the Lord has something that he'll use me to share with the people, to a little bit different thought of, I am such an idiot, <laughs> that, that, that I would think that I could be qualified to say anything helpful about patience to people that might view my life and might see my life and might see how poorly I display that. So, together, we're going to learn about patience, that maybe you will also see that you need it like I do. Um, But fortunately, we're not looking to the messenger as the source of of the answers, but we're looking to God's Word. And um, just to begin with a little bit of context, um, and I know we've we've kind of gone over this every time that we've talked about part of the fruit of the Spirit, but I want to repeat it again because I think there's a danger. I think um, when we talk about um, where the Bible makes statements about our behavior, it's possible for us to immediately apply that wrongly. And I think that that's, that's evident. If you ask somebody about the Ten Commandments. If you ask someone who, just an acquaintance, they'll have some familiarity with the Ten Commandments. And if you ask them how it is that we would go to heaven, they might say, you go to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. And if you keep them more than you break them, God weighs that in the balance, and he says, welcome, you're, better, you're more good than bad, so I'll take you to heaven which is actually the opposite of what the Bible says the Ten Commandments are for. They're actually to teach us of our need for God. They're to teach us of our need for a Savior. They're a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we desperately ask Him for the help that we need because we're bankrupt. And Paul makes that point to the Galatians. The, the, chap, the, the book of the Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians, is... Um, we could say broadly, is a contrast between salvation by grace, which is the gospel that Paul preached, and salvation by works, which was creeping into the churches in Galatia. And so, as he contrasted grace 
and works and made it very clear that any gospel besides the gospel of grace is no gospel at all, he now is discussing the contrast between flesh and spirit. And that's, that's where we find the verses that we're looking at for the fruit of the Spirit. So in this, he is saying, yes, there is a difference between the behavior of someone who follows Jesus Christ and the behavior of someone who does not and follows the flesh and the appetites of the flesh. He's saying there is a contrast between those two, but there should be no mistake in in our thinking that we would say, well, that contrast actually leads to this is how I earn God's favor by doing the things he's telling me to do, or ultimately, this is how I go to heaven by doing these things. That's, that's actually the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying we cannot do enough good, we cannot earn our way to God, But by the gift of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to live a life that glorifies our maker and our master. Jesus also alluded to that. You know, the contrast between the law and the spirit or the the need really for us to have more than an external imposed holiness when he preached what would, we would probably think of as his first sermon in, in the uh, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, Jesus preaches the sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. And among many things that he announced to his followers in that sermon, he said, you have heard, and he quotes something from the law or describes, paraphrases something from the law. For example, you have heard you should not commit murder. But I tell you that if you call your brother a fool, if you disdain him, if you, if you have ill thoughts towards him, you're actually guilty before God. And in danger, he says specifically, you're in danger of hellfire for that thought in your heart. He said, um, you've heard in the law, it says don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you that you're guilty before a holy God for lustful thoughts that you think in your heart. You have heard, love your, friend, love your neighbors, but I'm telling you, love your enemies. And so he's pointing to the, the listeners on the Sermon on the Mount and to us, and to us this morning. He's saying the issue is not one of an imposed holiness or a ruler who has certain criteria. This is how you must behave to be a part of the club or to be a part of the group, to be a part of the church. But rather, there's a problem that's even deeper than that, much deeper than that, infinitely deeper than your behavior, and that is a problem with your heart. And even though maybe we can have a good day or a a good week, Some of you, I never would have a good week, but we might have a good day of trying to keep some rules. The reality is we would be pretending to keep rules in our behavior that didn't come from our heart unless our heart was changed. So we are hopeful because of the promise 
that God gave to his people in Jeremiah chapter 31 when he said, I am going to make a new covenant with you. And in this new covenant, I am going to write my law on your heart. It's not going to be like the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, which is the the Ten Commandments were given at that time. That's almost certainly the reference that's made in Jeremiah and quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, that not that kind of a covenant, which covenant, by the way, you failed to keep, but in this covenant, I'm going to write on your heart. And so that's our hope, is that he is working a change in us from the inside out, and that as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we're not talking about something that we want to see as a list of rules and a measuring stick by which we would say, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good? Oh, I messed up again. Ah. That's not what he's intending, but he is telling us what is the manifestation that God will work out in us as we yield to him and to his spirit who by the way, is promised to reside inside of us, which is where the source of the problem exists in the first place. So with that, as the, the, as the preparation for the context, we'll read just, just a very short amount in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. First of all, um, patience is a word we probably use pretty often, but just to clarify our thinking, make sure we're talking about what, um, what the Bible is saying, it's talking about probably, in most cases, something more than I'm in a line with three people ahead of me at the grocery store and I have to wait until they get through, their, um, get through the line and counting their pennies to pay for their, their purchase. Although that's a display of patience, it probably means something much more than that as well because it's used um, in the context of those who were suffering for their faith or suffering simply under the weight of our mortality. It's used um, of Job in that he persevered under a suffering that he had nothing to cause, that he even, um, the, probably among the most famous words that Job uttered uh, include the day that he got the news. And if you're familiar with the story in Job chapter 2, he got news that um, his, his uh, possessions were stolen. Then immediately as that person was talking, the next person came and wave after wave after wave of bad news. And finally the last news he heard was the death of all his children. And his immediate response was not to deny that this is painful or that this is true suffering and that it hurts, but it was to fall on his face and to say in worship, 
The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, I don't think patience in suffering means we deny that it is difficult and that it hurts us to the very core of our being. But it is to say that the God who ordains it is still worth our worship even as we suffer. It also is used in in the sense of waiting for something that we long for. Um, And again, that can be a trite thing. That can be a small thing like I I ordered something and it hasn't arrived yet. It was supposed to be in the mail today and, and, and it's not here. But... The scripture describes um, the, the longings of people like Hannah who, who begged the Lord for a child or, or the same happened with Sarah and Elizabeth who were the, the mothers of Samuel and um, Sarah the mother of Isaac and Elizabeth the, the mother of John the Baptist that in their longing they... They sought the Lord and displayed a kind of patience that had a confidence in the, in the God who was making those decisions and was controlling the events of their life. And it is also described as the way we interact with each other. It's also described um, as Paul gives uh, his counsel in, in the first book to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians, and he, and he talks about how they are to interact with each other, and how that even when they, they have a disagreement, there should, they should disagree with patience and with an exercise of forbearance towards each other. And in those three categories, whether we're waiting for something we want to happen or we're waiting for something bad to be over, or we're trying to get along and work through the conflicts that occur in all of our lives, I would say most of us will will see those as at least events that come frequently, if not daily, hourly, moment by moment. Those things challenge us to be an instrument of the Lord. So, now maybe you're starting to feel what I was feeling after giving it some thought that if, if we're to measure ourselves and say, do I display these aspects? We, we are desperately in need of God's help. So I'd like to just talk about uh, uh, just a little bit of um, a view of, of patience as to the cost of, of being impatient for some people in the Bible and the, the value of patience and then conclude with the source of patience as the Bible describes it. Um, when we think of the cost of impatience, there are a lot of stories. There are many more stories, I think, in the Bible about people who displayed impatience than there are on the opposite side of that. But for, for examples of impatience. We could look to a lot of people, but I, I thought maybe a good example of that would be Jacob and Esau, who were twin brothers, twin, twin boys, and they were born um, to Isaac. 
and uh, they were the only sons of, of Isaac and Rebekah. And Jacob and Esau were twins, but it was very well known that Esau was the firstborn of the twins, and that meant that he had the right to the inheritance of the family. Well, they were rivals, and they were rivals for a lot of reason. The Bible even tells us some of the dysfunction of their family, that, that um, Isaac favored Esau, and Rebekah, the mother, favored Jacob. And the, there um, was a time when, first of all, uh, there's just a couple events about that rivalry that are described to us, and one of those is that um, Esau's out hunting, and he comes in from his hunt, and he is hungry. And he says, he says you, you could take it seriously if you, if, you, if, if you just read it at face value. He says, I am about to die. I need to eat something. And so Jacob, as you know, he's cooking some stew, and he gives him some stew. And, well, doesn't give it to him yet. He says, I'll give you some stew if you sell me the right of the firstborn. And and. Esau thinks it over in his mind and he says, what, am, what good is the, the right of the firstborn if I die of hunger? And then the Bible says, he ate his stew and he rose up and he went away. So he, just an amazing recovery from somebody who was at death's door to the point where he would sell something so valued as his birthright to his brother. But you don't see a lot of patience on Jacob's part either. Because Jacob, when it comes time to be blessed by his father, deceives him. With the help of his mother, deceives him into receiving the blessing that the firstborn was supposed to receive because that was a separate thing. That was not the birthright, but that was the blessing that would be handed down by Isaac. And he, he wanted to and intended to bless Esau. But Jacob and Esau both displayed that kind of an impatience to receive what God would provide for them. Esau, impatient for the food. Jacob, impatient for the promise that God had made that he would be the prominent one and that the blessing of the gospel itself would come through Jacob and not Esau. That by him and his seed, a Savior would be born and that Savior would be a blessing not only to the children of Jacob, and Esau, of, of Jacob and his lineage, rather, but to all nations of the world. That is, as the, the Bible declares in the New Testament, that was the, the declaration of the gospel to Jacob. But the cost of that is immense, because as, as Esau sold his birthright, of course, he, he lost the inheritance of, uh, he, he lost the right, rather, to the firstborn. But as Jacob was impatient in receiving what God had promised, he broke relationships. He had to flee, ran away, did not have contact with the rest of his family for many years, probably about 20 years. He is gone and that relationship is broken for that entire time. So there's a brokenness of relationships when we exercise impatience. It also broke his relationship with God because throughout the years that Jacob was gone and wandering, 
God was continually wooing him. And you, you recall the story of how God appeared to him as he was fleeing from his brother and made him and affirmed the promises to him. And yet Jacob was tentative in receiving those. And he said, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then you'll be my God. And it also broke the relationship with his parents. The mother that loved him and helped him deceive his father and sent him off in fear of his life probably never saw him again. Because there's no record of Rebecca still being alive when Jacob finally does come home. They also, as they exercised impatience, missed the blessing of what God was doing at that moment. Um, maybe is a concept that's not that easy to describe, but, but I think that if I am always thinking about what is not happening, I am missing what is happening. So that I'm actually never here. I'm always somewhere else. Always either longing that uh, uh, something would be fulfilled, a promise that I'm hoping for would be fulfilled, or longing that a pain would be over that I'm enduring right now, or longing that the relationship that has some friction in it would maybe just go away, or, or somehow it would be fixed instead of being patiently understood, and, and, and uh, that I would show forbearance and kindness and gentleness. So I'm missing that. I'm missing out on those things that God would bless me with. God would bless me with the lessons of suffering. He would bless me with the current things that he's doing for me while I wait for other promises that he's going to give. Those are the costs of my impatience. But the value of patience on the other side might be displayed in the life of someone like Joseph. Joseph who was promised early in his life through a dream that he would actually be the prominent one in his family. Now, Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob who had all the problems we talked about. But Joseph is, is one of the younger sons of Jacob. And he um, is abused and um, sold into slavery by his brothers. He then is falsely accused, goes to prison, and we... We know that story if we're at all familiar with the Bible. But throughout that, Joseph is displaying a a sense of resignment or even worship of the God who is causing these things to happen. He doesn't understand them. There's no sense that we we see that, that Joseph knew everything that was going to happen and he knew that ultimately he would end up being a ruler in Egypt and saving many people. But throughout his time of, of waiting, he displayed the patience that allowed him to be useful. And so the value that he displayed through his patience was the usefulness of God in in the kingdom of Egypt, in the, in the house of the Pharaoh, in prison even, to be a counselor to fellow prisoners, to, to declare in that place and in that condition the reality of, of God's plan for them. He was useful in saving an entire nation, ultimately. 
Another example of someone who um, displays the value of patience is Peter. Peter was, of course, one of the apostles. He was someone who spent time with Jesus. He would be part of the inner circle with Jesus. And there was a time where Jesus was telling people that they had to forgive. And Peter says, well, how many times do I have to forgive? My brother, seven times a day? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And so in, in Matthew chapter 18, he tells the story of, of two people. And for the sake of time, again, I'll paraphrase it, but he says there was someone who owed millions and millions of dollars to, to his master. And the master said, pay what you owe me or I will have your family and you sold and, and uh, thrown into prison and I, I will collect my debt any way I can. And he said, have patience with me and uses the word patience. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Which is a silly answer given the magnitude of the debt. Jesus described it as millions of dollars in today's terms, and this is a servant person who's making the promise to repay it. He's making an illustration that this is a ridiculous answer to give or a ridiculous promise to make. You're never going to pay this back. But the master had compassion and forgave everything. But then that servant went out and found someone who owed him a few dollars. And the person used exactly the same phrase, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He said, no, I'm going to throw you in prison until you pay up your debt. And Jesus said, that made the master very sad. And he, and he went to him and said, you should have had compassion on your fellow servant because of all the forgiveness I gave you. So the story then is, is the answer to Peter's question. Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive? And Jesus said, gives him a story of the magnitude of the debt that he had been forgiven. So, Later on, Peter, in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the Bible says that he is among the first to suffer persecution for the gospel's sake. And he is first told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We told you to stop. And he said, do we obey God or, or men? And so they told him, don't you dare do that again. And he went out and he preached the gospel again. And then they took him again, and and this time they told him, we told you not to do that, and you still did it. And they beat him and his co-workers, the other apostles, and they left rejoicing, the Bible says, that they were accounted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And so this is now Peter who had asked about the issue of forgiveness displaying the kind of patience that says, these people don't understand. I'm going to keep preaching to them. I'm going to keep giving them the good news. And I'm going to keep loving them. And I am going to rejoice that it brings suffering to my life. Well, I think that the events that happened between those two 
stories are very important because Peter is also the one that says to Jesus when he says, all men will deny me, all will be offended in me this night. And Peter says, no, these all might do that, but I never will be offended. I will never leave you. And, and Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Satan has desired that he would sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so Peter then, from that promise, goes to a place where he's challenged by a young maid, and for the third time he says, I never knew him. I, I don't know who this is. I never knew him. And the, the Lord turns and looks on Peter and he remembers the words of Jesus. And so he goes out and he weeps bitterly. But it doesn't stay there. See, it doesn't stay in that condition of brokenness with Peter and the, and the condition of failure. But there's a, a, an account where he meets Jesus after the resurrection. And that's found in John chapter 22. Um, where Jesus, after the resurrection, goes and, and finds the apostles, and Peter is fishing. And, excuse me, John chapter 22, somebody probably is laughing. It's John chapter 21, because there's only 21 chapters in John. Um, Jesus meets them on the shore. And after the events where Peter's attempts to fish fail until he follows the instructions of Jesus, he comes to shore. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? After they've had breakfast together, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. He asks him a third time, Peter, do you love me? See, this is the display of the patience of our Lord in making use of us after our failure. That is the grace that came to us and comes to us even now. Can we, can we ask ourselves, how great is his patience with us? Can we ask that question? And can we recount in our mind, how many times did he invite us to know him, to come to know him as a sinner? How many times? Was it one time I heard the gospel and immediately I responded and there was no need for God to be patient with me? Or did he... Did he Bring the gospel to us over and over and over again and our rebellious heart continued to resist and yet he broke through in so many intricate ways. He, he orchestrated events so that the voice of a loved one spoke a word and another word was spoken by this one and we look back at the tapestry of how he called us to himself and we say, that's amazing that the patient work of God did this and then this and this and this and this and that his love was so great for me that he would do that to call me back to himself a rebellious a rebellious sinner who 
expressed nothing but disdain for him. And now yet, as a believer, can we say, well, he has no need to be patient with me now because now I'm walking in the light and I do everything he asks me to do. He, over and over and over, he has called us back to himself. We are like the younger son that we heard about a few weeks ago who came back knowing we are unworthy and expecting maybe just to give up, be given a place at the table of the servants and, and instead our father show, shows the, the lavish and extravagant love to throw us a party. And so now this expression, these expressions, these manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit are not a matter of a debt that we have to work off. Although that could be it. Because we could say, I owe so much, but it was given freely. It's not as if God has kept an account of all the times he was patient with Mark. It's as if God has lavishly given me so much. And if I work and if I display the fruit of the Spirit, I do it out of the overflow of the abundance of what I have been given. So that it is a party. It is like the younger son who came home and found to his surprise that, that, that there was a rejoicing just that he was alive and came back. Or do I think of it like the older son who, who was living under the, the weight of debt and the, the kind of resentful work was being done where he was always trying to earn trying to work and under the oppressive, slavish kind of resentment, it never was enough and he never went to the party and he never realized the love that was available and, and was offered to him by his father who said, no, come, be part of this celebration. It's all yours too. I, I want to conclude with the words of Paul who, when this struck him as he was writing to the Romans, when the glorious nature of the gospel and the free gift of God that's given to us who are unworthy struck him again, it almost came like a wave as in chapter 11 of, to the letter to the Romans, he said, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given to him that he should repay them? To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I know that not all of us can kneel, but those that can, let's kneel in conclusion as we pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are desperate before you in need 
of the character that you can give to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. How much we need you, how much we need your Spirit, how much we need to be your light in this world, in a world that is desperate to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you will pour out your Spirit anew on us and that by that gift of your Spirit, we will manifest the character that is your character, that you would be glorified, that none of us would be exalted. We have nothing to be exalted in. We are desperately in need of you. We come bankrupt seeking the gift that will not only Bless us to be in communion with you, but it will bless all the world around us so that they get a glimpse of the character of our Lord. Lord, make us your instruments for your purposes, for your gospel, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.